The VPM Daily Newscast is sponsored by the Valentine Museum. Its Richmond History Makers event honors the individuals, organizations, objects, and even moments that have shaped Richmond's history over the past 125 years. Thursday, April 11th, part of a week-long celebration at the Valentine. Tickets can be purchased at richmondhistorymakers.com. I'm Benjamin Dolly, and this is the VPM Daily Newscast. Virginia is the largest harvester of menhaden fish along the Atlantic coast. Today, regulators are expected to approve a plan for managing their population. As Whitney Evans reports, the fish is critical to the Chesapeake Bay's food chain. The multi-state Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission is weighing guidelines that help determine how many menhaden need to be left in the water to make sure marine wildlife like whales, dolphins, and striped bass have enough food. The Chesapeake Bay Foundation senior scientist Chris Moore says the number of menhaden coming into the bay has been down for about 20 years. This is a way to make sure we better manage this very important resource um, for all the benefits that it can provide the ecosystem and not just based on the fishery that catches them. Lawmakers passed bipartisan legislation this year to transfer the management of the fishery from the General Assembly to regulators. Whitney Evans, VPM News. President Trump signed the Great American Outdoors Act into law this week. On top of providing $9.5 billion to land conservation departments, the bill also included Virginia Senator Mark Warner's Restore Our Parks Act. The act invests over a billion dollars to fund overdue maintenance at national park sites. The money will be used to repair and improve park facilities such as restrooms, trails, and campgrounds. Warner says the bill is also expected to create over 10,000 new jobs in Virginia. The passage comes three years after Warner initially introduced the bill. In a statement, Warner thanked his colleagues for making sure our nation's historical treasures are around for years to come. Virginia voters will now be able to track the progress of their mail-in ballots. As Ben Pavier reports, it's one of several changes coming to absentee voting this November. Ballots will come with so-called intelligent mail codes under new regulations passed by the Board of Elections. The idea is to help the overworked Postal Service speed up their delivery. The move comes as President Trump casts doubt on the agency's ability to quickly return ballots. State Elections Commissioner Chris Piper says his department has a strong relationship with the Postal Service. Uh, we have been assured over and over again um, that absentee, or sorry, election mail is a priority for the Postal Service. A new state law allows absentee ballots mailed on November 3rd, Election Day, to still be counted so long as registrars receive them by noon on November 6th. Still, Piper is encouraging voters to cast mail-in absentee ballots sooner rather than later. Ben Pavier, VPM News. Voters can apply for a mail-in ballot at elections.virginia.gov. They'll be mailed out in late September. Virginia's Superintendent of Public Instruction James Lane announced Tuesday that he'll waive next year's school accreditation ratings. The ratings are based on performance during the previous school year, which take into consideration student performance on SOL tests and key subjects like English, math, and science. Instead, schools will be given a rating of accreditation waived, which was also assigned to schools for the last academic year after they went fully virtual. Without SOL scores from the past spring, the State Department of Education says there's insufficient data needed to calculate the accreditation ratings. The University of Virginia announced yesterday that it will be pushing back the start of in-person instruction by two weeks in order to ease concerns over the COVID-19 pandemic. Undergraduate classes will still begin online on August 25th, with in-person classes starting on September 8th. Graduate and professional programs will begin as scheduled. Residence halls will open for move-in several days before in-person classes start in September. A complete move-in schedule will be posted later. The university plans to have another update before the end of the month. 
VCU is releasing more information for how it plans to reopen later this month amid the coronavirus pandemic. Roberta Roldan has more. The university's return to campus plan, called One VCU, will place strict limits on certain amenities, like a 50% capacity in dining halls, class size limits of 50 students, and two-person occupancy limits in elevators. VCU says tape and signage will also be used to ensure one-way traffic flow and social distancing. Students and staff will be asked to take a survey each day, screening them for COVID-19 symptoms. The fall semester begins on August 17th, and classes will end around Thanksgiving. Roberto Roldan, VPM News. Food services have seen more job losses than any other American industry during the coronavirus pandemic. As Patrick Larson reports, Virginia Senators Mark Warner and Tim Kaine are co-sponsoring a bill that would set aside $120 billion in grants for restaurants across the nation. According to the advocacy group National Restaurant Association, at least 78% of Virginia's food service workers have been laid off or furloughed since March. The Restaurants Act, if passed, would provide funding aimed at helping smaller establishments stay open and eventually bring their employees back to work. Businesses could use the cash for payroll, rent, and other expenses, including construction of outdoor seating areas. Social distancing restrictions brought on by COVID-19 have had lasting effects on restaurants and could impact their ability to resume normal operations indefinitely. Patrick Larson, VPM News. About three times the number of Latinos in Richmond have contracted COVID-19 compared to their white neighbors. Local health districts are doing more to ramp up bilingual contact tracing efforts to make sure the coronavirus doesn't keep spreading in these communities. Megan Pauley reports. On June 5th, Karen Chacon started to experience some symptoms of COVID-19, like what she says felt like a mosquito in her throat. About a week later, she decided to get tested. And the next day, she noticed her sense of smell was gone. I called my husband and I told him I don't smell. I started crying and I told him, that's it, definitely. It's the virus. Chacon, who lives in Chesterfield County, did in fact have COVID-19. But she says a contact tracer never reached out to her. That put the burden on her to contact family members and friends she'd been around. When you tell people you're sick, they get away from you. I think many people have suffered this form of discrimination for having tested positive. Two months later, Chacon still hasn't heard from a contact tracer. As of mid-July, about 13 percent of contact tracers statewide spoke Spanish, according to the Virginia Department of Health. Local health districts like Richmond's have been trying to ramp up hiring of bilingual contact tracers. Dr. Danny Avula, director of the Richmond and Henrico Health Districts, says that's been a challenge. I think we had a handful of Spanish speakers, some of whom were native Spanish speakers, um, but some of whom were not. Avula realized just having someone who speaks Spanish isn't enough because someone who is bilingual isn't necessarily bicultural. There is a difference in someone who has shared the culture and shared the immigrant experience in being able to uh, identify and allay the fears and concerns of the person on the other end of that phone. Agnes Alamo Ramos is one of the people on the other end of the phone. She's a contact tracer for the health district. She has a background in nursing and is from Puerto Rico. When they hear somebody talking the same language as them, it's like the barriers go a little bit, you know, they release a little bit their barriers. They, they tend to speak more. 
But occasionally, the fact that Alamo Ramos can communicate in someone's native language isn't enough to help them open up. And I have to tell them, sir, this is very confidential. This is only for the health department. When they don't believe you, you know, they have that belief, they put a wall. So you cannot cross that wall with them. It's not just an issue of trust or fear of information being shared with ICE. Dr. Edgar Monteroso, an epidemiologist for the CDC, says many Latino residents are afraid about what a positive test might mean for their family. Many can't afford to self-isolate for 14 days if they don't have paid sick leave. What happens to household income? How do you put food on the table if the breadwinner needs to isolate? Monteroso's team surveyed households in Richmond's Southwood Apartments, where the average household income is between ten dollars and $15,000 a year. Health officials have secured some funding to help support those who can't afford not to work if they have COVID-19. But Chacon, who came to the U.S. from El Salvador and is on a work permit, pointed out another problem. While her and her husband were able to take time off when she got sick, Chacon says that's not the case for many Latino workers. We don't matter to the companies, and they keep sending us to work. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, five out of six Latinos work outside the home, many in essential jobs. Megan Polly, VPM News. All the stories you've heard can be found online at vpm.org news. This has been the Daily VPM Newscast. VPM. 